Hi, welcome to Madison Bookbeat. I'm Angie Trudell-Vasquez. And I'm Devin Trudell. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with poet Ed Werstein about his latest collection from Water's Edge Press entitled Communique, Poems from the Headlines. Ed Werstein, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, is a regional VP of the Wisconsin Fellowship of Poets, He is a sustaining member of Blue Collar Review. His poems have appeared in over 50 different journals and anthologies. Wurstein's poetry has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. In 2018, he received the Council of Wisconsin Writers' Lorene Niedeker Award. So, Ed, in looking at this book, we were really taken with how it's constructed. So the outside of Communique Poems from the Headline is an old typewriter. And then Devin noticed that it appears to be text from a paper regarding the Titanic going down, which I'm going to ask you about. But then in opening it, it was so lovely the way you broke it down. The inner architecture of this book is like a a newspaper. And it's just, it's a marvel. It's a construct, it's constructed marvelously. Can you talk a little bit about how you constructed this, this book? Sure. First of all, uh, this is the first book I've had published by Waters Edge Press in Sheboygan. I just have to thank the editor at Waters Edge Press, Don Hogue, who was just immensely uh, helpful with ideas for how the book should be constructed. She designed the cover. She made suggestions for edits to the poems and order of poems and so on. The papers that are spread across the cover behind the typewriter from various newspapers, but that's Dawn's design. I agree, it's it's great. Yeah, it's beautifully done. Um, each poem, as you said, is reacting to a headline. Um, it's going to feel like perhaps several outrages ago to remember back to the Scott Walker protests that happened here in Madison. Um, but would you read for us, Supporting the Troops? Yes. Um, this poem is uh, from 2000, from a headline in 2011 from the New York Times, Wisconsin Workers Protest Plan to Cut Benefits, Supporting the Troops, for the activists in the 2011 Wisconsin Uprising. We support you, our heroes on the front line, we who cannot be there daily, who cannot brave the cold and snow, who cannot spend the night on marble floors, protecting the rights of us all. We will shovel your walks, water your plants, feed your animals. We will watch your children, read them stories of your bravery and resolve, tell them their parents are heroes defending our freedom. We will post and repost your messages, your videos, your letters, your firsthand accounts, your stories that don't make the corporate news. We will feed you with pizza from down the street ordered for you from around world. We will write poetry and music in your honor. And when we can, as soon as we can, every time that we can, we will be there in our thousands, reinforcing you, warming you with our warm bodies and our love. That really brings back that feeling. Um, Of course, the recall went the way that it went, but there really was a a feeling of uh, solidarity 
I can tell you that my reaction to seeing what was happening at the Capitol was to run to Kinko's, get some signs made, and take a Greyhound bus to Madison because I just sort of had to be here uh, being from here. I, we were living in Milwaukee at the time. Yeah, that was uh, that was an amazing moment, and uh, we've had quite a few amazing moments since. Uh, it might feel like ancient history. Sort of anything before 2016 tends to feel like a long time ago. Right. Um, you have another poem on a similar theme or about a, the same governor that's called Transportation Blues. Uh, would you read that one for us? Sure. The headline is uh, from a couple months previous to the, to the last one. It's from In These Times, Wisconsin governor rejects $810 million for high-speed rail. Transportation Blues. It starts with an epigram from the song by Taj Mahal, she caught the Katie and left me a mule to ride. What will it mean to get untracked or derailed when the trains are gone? In the future, will unforeseen catastrophes still be compared to getting hit by a train? Will jilted lovers no longer be left standing on the platform watching their mates board the Katie? Will we all be left a mule to ride? Will we ever get back on track? How will we ease our troubled mind when the 219 no longer comes by? What cliches will we use when all the trains are gone? Just a little note to that, the Katie was is a popular name for the Missouri-Kansas to uh, Texas Railway. And um, uh, so that's, you know, and that, and several of the of the lines in the poem are taken from that song by Taj Mahal. Uh-huh. Ah, nice. Well, Ed, we have to tell you, Taj Mahal is um, someone we have seen many times, Devin and I. So this Me song, too, yeah. this the the song and this poem, and remembering how disappointed we were not to have a train and still do not have a train, it, it's kind of a bitter memory. But the poem is true. Transportation blues for sure. I realized this morning when I woke up that we have seen Taj Mahal play in five different states uh, at this point wow. in my life. So, yeah, he's a real favorite of yeah. ours. Uh, I have a framed album cover of his on my wall and everything. So you, you really had oh, me. You had me on page two or whatever that was. <laughs> <laughs> I saw your, your pieces in here, Ed, and I'm like, oh, this is perfect for Devin and I. But I like how you weave in history. And for people that may be listening they not, may not be aware of this recent history. Um, I wonder if you could read Teaching Women How to Fly. Sure. Um, this is from uh, a headline in 2011, but it, it marked the centennial of uh, the Triangle Shirt Factory fire in New York City, which was in 1911. The headline's from NPR, a somber centennial for the Triangle Factory fire. And just previous to this, uh, the, the poem's called Teaching Women How to Fly. And just previous to the centennial, on December 14, 2010, more than 30 workers died and 100 were injured when they jumped from the upper floor windows to escape a garment factory fire in Dakab, Bangladesh. Teaching Women How to Fly. Your great-grandparents marched for safety, bread and roses, after the fire forced the women to jump from windows at the Triangle Shirt Factory in New York City in 1911. 
Your grandparents fought and died for safety. Bread and Roses at Flint in 1937 held the GM factory for weeks to win their union. Your parents picketed time and again for safety. Bread and Roses to protect their union in what has become the Rust Belt. And now women are flying again, falling from factory windows in Bangladesh while you wait in line at Walmart to buy the shirts they were sewing on the day before they died. Died to make the owners richer, owners whose ancestors owned shirt factories in New York, owners who now are looking for other women in even poorer countries to teach them how to fly. Wow. Boy, that is a powerful poem, and you really uh, tied together a lot of history, labor history, and brought it right up till today, the the child labor that we supposedly got rid of in the progressive era has just been exported to other countries. Yeah, make- there's this, his- this history in America of, you know, progress followed by regression, followed by progress. I, I heard Noam Chomsky speak one time, and he said, what you have to look at is not so much that every once in a while we regress, but that when we come out of it, we make progress. Yeah. So that kind of eased my mind a little bit, but uh, it's still hard. I mean, it's been, you know, 30 or 40 years of regression now. So yeah, it's it kind of depressing sometimes. One of the things I think you do really well, um, you hear people like Cornell West talk about just bearing witness and you seem to maintain a worldly view. And so you're bearing witness to things that are not necessarily front and center uh, in the mainstream news. Uh, and that really comes through uh, in your book. Some of the headlines you're reacting to are not necessarily things that everybody knows about. Um, so right. we commend you for that, and mm-hmm. of course, uh, share your Thanks. share your views. Added what I, what I wanted to mention. I love how we can time travel in poems with you through history, our own lived experience, and then you know we can bring it back to the page, and then we can go back hundreds of years. So I don't I don't know how we always come to that as poets. I'm a poet, as you are, and Devin studies history, but your work could actually be read as docu-poetics in some ways. Is Thank that, you, Ed. Yeah. Is that part of what you're trying to do, is to, to bring back historical events and hope that people will be curious and look into them if they don't know? Is that part of it for you? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think, you know, a, a lot of people don't realize you know how you know the old saying history repeats itself you know and sooner or later we got to get past that and you know make real progress so, yeah. yeah yeah well i think the the notion you said before about the arc of the universe bends towards justice you know maybe more right. slightly than we would like um right but yeah we we have to know about it in order to learn from it i think is essential exactly. um sometimes in the digital world it feels like we all are just blank slates every day to be uh, filled with new messages. <laughs> it's not a 24-hour news cycle. It's a every 10-second news cycle now, you know? Yeah. Right. So, Ed, some say the role of the poet is to observe, suss out the world, and bring it to the page. And we, I mean, we've talked a little bit about this, but what do you think history plays in, the, in poetry? What role do you think plays? Well, uh, I, you know, I think, who, who was it now? Was it... Uh, was it William Carlos Williams who said uh, um, po- poetry doesn't always? I, I'm paraphrasing. Poetry doesn't doesn't give you the news, but many people 
uh, uh, suffer every day for the lack of it or some something mm -hmm. like that. You can look it up. Yeah. But, but anyway, yeah, I think we have to, or at least my my one of my goals is to bear witness to what has happened in my lifetime and you know, let people know that, you know, this this stuff happened, make them aware of and make you know, the what's make on. the connections to today. Yeah, absolutely. You really do a good job of, I would call it distilling history. You know, you give the reference so they could look up the headline in the news story itself. Um, but y your poetry is clear enough that they're I think they're learning from just reading it. Thank you. I think we'll segue a little bit to a different poem that feels a little more personal, I think. Um, could you read Still Life for us? Sure. This poem is very personal. This was one of the most traumatic events in my life. My older son, I have two boys. My older son married a woman from Santiago, Chile, and they lived there for several years after they were married. They moved back here in 2011. So uh, the headline is from... Uh, February 27th, 2010, in The Guardian, deadly earthquake hits central Chile. Still life. In the photos taken just hours before the earth shook, you are smiling, happy to have a Wisconsin visitor, happy to talk baseball and American politics, happy to introduce someone new to the flavors of pastel de choclo, that most authentic of Chilean cuisine, which sits cooling in front of you, its thick sweet corn crust, like the crust of Chile, still unbroken, but bubbling beneath the surface. Later, after the meal and the Malbec, our friend, your visitor, walks to his hotel, and you, your wife, and my grandson board the metro heading for home, all of you still smiling, still unaware of the earth's deeper motion, unaware of the trembling night ahead, unaware that just off the coast, frantic fish are already heading for deeper water. Mm. Mm. That's a great last image to capture the sort of ominousness mm -hmm. of that. Um, do you want to yeah, say they, any more about the actual incident? Um, right, right. The, the, the earthquake occurred on a Friday evening course the news broke here on Saturday morning when I got up and I said oh my god how are they how are they how are the kids you know yeah and I didn't I didn't hear from them mm. until Sunday evening mm. uh they their phone service was out they had to evacuate their building uh, uh, and Jeff my son finally got a friend of his who had access to email and he sent me an email saying everything's okay. They moved in with Veronica's parents for a, a few days while they inspect their building. So it was a big relief to me. But those 48 hours were. Yeah, I can imagine. And <laughs> I can't imagine how you, you got through those 48 hours because, you know, we love our people, which I think really exactly. shows in this poem. Um, and it's a beautiful poem. And Devin's right, that last image unaware that just off the coast frantic fish are already heading for deeper waters like if we could see the animals and i know animals do this quite often they they know it's coming angie and i had the experience of living through an earthquake when we lived in seattle uh, i think it was 99 or 2000 uh, they called it the rattle of seattle at the time um and it's it really is an ominous experience that you don't you don't recognize what's happening right away. Things start shaking. Uh, I was sitting in a library, and I thought the, a 
car had just driven off the road and run into the building. It was just what my brain explained it you, as. Um, I, every every. Remember, go ahead. Do you remember what the what the um, what the what the rating was the Richter scale on that? I do. Oh, you do. Seven point four. This one, this one in in Chile was eight point eight. Oh my yeah. gosh! Oh my gosh! The second, the second largest earthquake that that country has ever experienced. So I was nervous. <laughs> I know, just in terms of, uh, I guess, safety information for people. Uh, being a Midwesterner, I did not know what to do. And I thought, I don't want to be in this building with uh, several stories above me. So I ran outside, uh, which is exactly the wrong thing to do because buildings shake and the, the bricks fall from the tops of the buildings first. So you can run right. outside and get yourself uh, one right on the dome, uh, which I didn't. But <laughs> um, so word to the wise, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, my son and his wife and the baby mm. went uh, immediately went into the bathroom and crawled into the bathtub and covered themselves uh but it was like a couple of minutes before it had been settled down and then there were like 10 or 12 aftershocks after that so yeah very frightening of course something that the world will experience with greater frequency with uh, our global warming issue which is something that your poems also address and we'll talk about yeah right i think we stay in chile here um yeah and, um, you know, one of the things about poets is we have conversations with poets poets and poems um, throughout all time. Could you read on the exhumation of the body of Pablo Neruda? And maybe for people who don't know, tell them who Pablo Neruda is. Well, pa- Pablo Neruda, uh, well, first of all, Chile is full of poetry. They have, I mean, you, you can't, you'd be hard pressed to find someone in Chile who hasn't memorized a poem and likely it would be a poem of Neruda's, but they have four or five poets there uh, that are national heroes. I visited my son and his family there several times while they lived there. And I had the pleasure of being in Isla Negra where one of Pablo Neruda's homes was. He passed away just a matter of a couple of weeks after the the, uh, coup uh, in um, 1973, uh, when Pinochet uh, uh, supplanted the democratically elected leader Allende. So while I was there in 2013, this thing was going on where they were exhuming Pablo Neruda's body. And I'm just speculating in this poem about what the reasons may have been. The headline is from the BBC News. Chilean poet Pablo Neruda's body to be exhumed. On the exhumation of the body of Pablo Neruda, Isla Negra, Chile, April 8, 2013. Dear Pablo, the whole world knows who and what killed you. Bringing up your body is just a media show. Would the discovery of arsenic or cyanide make the guilty any more guilty? Poison or no poison, Your spirit was crushed along with Chile's democracy. But the government had to come up with some excuse for examining your body. And now that the old dictator is dead, they can afford to lay another rap on his record. After all, like I said, would 3,001 deaths make Inershay more culpable than 3,000? No, they aren't looking for poison. 
the real reason for the exhumation is that the junta wasn't able to kill your poetry. People think you may have been buried alive. They're searching for the beating heart of your poetry, but they won't find it there in your grave. The heart of your poetry beats on around the world. That's great. Thank you. His work has had such an impact on me and I'm sure many poets throughout the world. And for people who don't know him, you should run out and look out Pablo Neruda. Are, are there any yeah. of those other names of, of famous Chilean poets that are less well known you want to just throw out there for yes. listeners? Yes, uh, there's uh, the the there's uh, Violeta Parra. I, I, I'm sorry, Ga- Gabriela Mistral is probably the second most famous poet in Chile. She she also has a library and museum in her hometown, which is Vicuña, which I visited also. And then there's Violeta Parra, who is. Uh, and her uncle, I think, uh, uh, Nicanor Para, and there are statues of these folks all in, you know, you walk into a park and you're likely to see a, a bronze statue of a poet there. It's, it's all the all the restaurants, the placemats have poetry on them. You know, it, it's mm. it's really, you know, yeah. Chile and Ireland are, you know, they're they're way ahead of us in preserving the love of poetry and their culture. That is so beautiful. I can't even imagine, you know, statues of poets everywhere. And like, we have this platform, Madison Bookbeat, and bringing poets like yourself on the air who talk about national and international history and news. And, and you know, I, I learned something right now from you. So this is really wonderful. Thank you. It, it really teaches you about your own culture to hear about others. Uh, it sounds strange to American ears to have um, poets be famous and people memorizing poems, but why should it? It's an, it's an art form that's as old as music and as old as sports. It used to be, it used to be more a regular part of the school curriculum. Both my folks you know, knew some poetry and recognized several poets, and, hmm. but you know, I didn't... You know, I was probably a junior or senior in high school before I had to, you know, before I was required to read, read yeah. any poetry. I think part of our job, I turned 50 this year. Uh, Angie uh, is turns 29 every year. Oh, stop. Um, <laughs> but to to sort of force some of the older things on the younger generation who can get uh, carried off by technology. I was just right. in a bookstore today shopping for my niece and nephew. We're going to. We're going to force some classic novels on our, <laughs> our, yeah. our niece and nephew. So uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls is going to my nephew, and a book called The Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers is going to my sure. niece, uh, both yeah. of which I read at about their ages and made an impression on me. So I'm I'm definitely right. going to put them on them, too. Yeah. Good, good choices. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, Ed, um, let's let's come up a little bit, come back to Milwaukee. Um, and if you could read If Only, that would be really great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I live near the lake, and I'm on the, the ninth floor of, a, of a, um, an apartment building. And every year, uh, there's a, a, an air show in Milwaukee with the jet fighters and the sonic booms all weekend. And there's no pets allowed in this building, but my friends who have pets you know, they're the like diving under the bed and shivering all weekend. And it, it's to me, it's atrocious. But anyway, uh, the, the headline is from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. 
June 21st, 2014, fog forces the cancellation of the Milwaukee Air Show. If only, if only it were that easy to stop a real bombing raid, mothers all over the world would pray for bad weather every day to spare their homes, their homelands, their children. But here on Milwaukee's lakefront, the spectacle is rescheduled for tomorrow. This roaring assault on eardrums and sensibilities is nothing compared to the price paid by others for the live ammo show, rain or shine. Here, parents burn the kids, wave flags, eat ice cream. So Ed, we gotta tell you, I mean, we're not a fan of this either, but the day we got married, Devin and I, uh, the Blue Angels can be heard in the background. So I... I in your honor? No. <laughs> well, we, we chalked it up. I had a grandfather who helped design airplanes in World War II, so we chalked it up to his spirit flying by at the end of the ceremony mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to, put a, to put a loving spin on the Blue Angels, right. I guess. But this right. is really poignant, this poem because of what's happening in the world right now. Um, and so I, I kind of considered this to be an anti-war piece, and that's why I wanted to hear you read this piece today. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your convictions in that regard, um, sort of anti-U.S. imperialism and anti-war, really shine through, um, and we commend you for that. Uh, we have a controversy in Madison. There's a, a airplane called the is it the f-35 mm-hmm. and a lot of people have signs in their yard trying to get rid of this project you familiar yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that yeah they do, that's going on there yeah they do the same thing to us we'll be out in our backyard and all of a sudden you're just absolutely assaulted and just seeing what it does to the wildlife is tells you everything you need to know mm-hmm. um, watching birds look for a place to to be safe right that's the hardest thing for the animals since we're talking about flights, and um, we like this play that you did with the poem, the famous poem by Dylan Thomas, could you read Do Not Go Gentle off that overbook flight? Right. This is the first poem in the section called Business News. I'm sure people remember that it's from uh, this headlines from CNN, April 10th, 2018. Passenger dragged off overbooked United flight. Do not go gentle off that overbooked flight after Dylan Thomas. Do not go gentle off that overbooked flight. You've got a ticket just like the others. Dig in, stay, rage, rage, and put up a good fight. An algorithm doesn't make it fair or right, no matter what United's policies say. Do not go gentle off that overbooked flight. The friendly skies aren't looking too bright. Facebook and YouTube show us the way he raged, raged, and put up a good fight. I'm telling you right now, they could just bite me if that happened to me one day. I'd not go gentle off that overbooked flight. The CEO's grave men must be turning white. I hope he sues them and makes them pay. Rage, rage, and put up a legal fight. And to you, traveler, searching Priceline or some such site for tickets to someplace far, far away, do not go gentle off that overbooked flight. Rage, rage. 
put up a good fight. <laughs> <laughs> we needed a little lightness, and this provides it. And for the people who can't see this, uh, you've got tur sets. Um, you have five stanzas of three lines, which we poets call a tur set. And then the last one is four lines. But the rhyme that you have throughout this is pretty marvelous. Um, yeah, it's, it, this, is a, this is actually a form called a villanelle. Mm. And um, I, for, I, I don't write very often in form, but uh, I, I have had some success with villanelle. I think, you know, uh, repetition is something I've tried to use effectively in my poetry as a poetic uh, um, vehicle. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I just gravitate toward the villanelle. And there's another one in this business section too, another villanelle. So yeah, and I like to bring the message with a little humor sometimes because I find it more effective. Yeah, you also are, you're reacting to all of these headlines of heavy stories, so it really works in the book. You kind of need you need the chuckle a few poems in, so I, that one really, especially because the the Dylan Thomas is a very it's a great poem, but it's a very heavy subject about his own exactly. father right. passing right. away. So to use that um, for something seemingly as petty as an overbooked flight was perfect because <laughs> it is the kind of thing people invest a lot of emotion in. Uh, I guess as we've seen. I, I had a vision, Ed, of you in this uh, in this poem, and it just cracked me up when you uh, you say, <laughs> "Me, if that happened to me one day, I'd not go gentle off that overbook flight." <laughs> like that's just hilarious. <laughs> and we didn't talk about this, Ed, but where did you grow up? I grew up uh, in uh, a outside on a small farm outside of a very small community in the southeasternmost. County in Michigan, Monroe County. Our farm was about equidistant from Toledo, Ohio, and Detroit, okay. um, and about 12 miles from Lake Erie. And it was just idyllic. My my, I had three uncles and an aunt that had farms um, within like a mile of my home, and right in the middle of it was the homestead that they all grew up on where mm. my grandfather had mm. raised them. So I had like 30 cousins, you know, oh, within wow. bicycling distance. It was just, you know, I mean, I thank goodness every day for the upbringing that I had, but sometimes I wonder if I've suffered enough to be a really good poet because, you know, uh, you know, the poetry, the, the poignant ones are really, they really come from the guts, and I, I try to get there, and, and well, uh, enough about that, but well, that, that's what I think about sometimes. No, and I, I totally get it, and like being the poet of the Between Us Two, and Devin's father's a poet, so he's ah. he's uh, he's been around poetry most of his life, but, you know, the poem about your son and your daughter-in-law and your your grandson in the earthquake like I could hear the emotion that is a very poignant poem but I think poets do a really good job sometimes of obscuring themselves in pieces um, and so I, I totally understand what you mean about whether or not you've suffered enough but I think just living in this country on a day-to-day -day basis and knowing our history is suffering enough yes yeah I, I, I agree were, were those uh, those were family farms? Are they still farming, or were they not able to make it into this generation? Well, it, I grew up in the fifties and early sixties, and 
in those days, you, you really couldn't raise a family on a small farm. So my dad and my uncles, they all worked for Ford Motor Company. Uh, and so I was also steeped in, you know, union history and, and union battles. And that's, you know, where some of the other poems have, have come from. Some of those farms, I still have cousins that, you know, have kept their hand in farming. Uh, but um, it's it's very difficult. You know, the agribusiness is just like booming. Yeah. Know? My my right. mother grew up on a dairy farm and my uncle kind of made it longer than most of those farms, just regular family farms around there. But he just mechanized early. You know, he had a, a pasteurizer put in before most people did. So right. he was... He was able to compete. Um, he's no longer doing it, but um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, a lot of those went under um, just kind of generationally. It just became right. impossible. This segues really nicely into the poem, Do Not Stare Directly, this discussion about class and, and farming. And, right. Yeah. All right. Uh, this is another villain now, like I said, and the headline is from CNBC, June 11, 2019. The stock market is closing in on an all-time high. Do not stare directly. Do not stare directly into Wall Street's blinding light as the Dow Jones approaches an all-time high. It doesn't glow for you, but for those you need to fight. Though tempted at times in the quiet of the night to get out of your laptop and search for stocks to buy, That urge comes from staring at Wall Street's blinding light. It's growing credit spending that makes it glow so bright. Your bills arrive, the bankers smile, and you begin to cry. Their light shines not for you, but for those you need to fight. The middle class is shrinking, and you'd think you'd never quite get out from under all those mounting debts before you die. You must not stare directly into Wall Street's blinding light. Fewer jobs and lower pay is the modern worker's plight. At intersections, homeless folks beg as you pass by. The doubt shines not on you, but on those you need to fight. Defy their corporate greed and austerity plans. You might even learn the economic reasons why you mustn't stare directly into Wall Street's glowing light. It doesn't shine for you, but on those you need to fight. That is very timely. You know, that really gets at the heart of a word, I think, that people like you and myself that follow uh, history and politics, the word neoliberalism. Um, Do you want to maybe define that for people? I know it gets tossed around, but I'm not sure everybody knows what people mean by neoliberalism. Um, Yeah, I'm not not sure I have an excellent grasp of it either. I don't. I don't have the degree in history that that you have, but I mean, to me, it, it it's the theory that that there's a benefit to everybody by spreading the free market across the globe, and um, that everybody will benefit by that. Mm-hmm. I I think it should be obvious to people that not everybody benefits from that, but only certain people benefit from it. Yeah, I think your poem gets to the heart of it. Um, you, you're really saying that in the poem. The other thing I would just add to that is, is more so than just leaving the profiteers alone. Um, it refers to a tendency to intervene on their behalf. And 
So institutions that can't make it in the free market are too big to fail and need to be propped up by the little people uh, so they can continue the system that uh, benefits the big people. We, we end up bailing them out instead of the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think, and that gets talked around in a way that I think people often don't see clearly, but um, it's obvious from reading your poems that you do. This actually segues really well into your poem, Mine, which um, I did have a little chuckle with this one, too. Would you mind? Would you read that, please? Yes. uh, There was a protest uh, in Wisconsin in 2013. Uh, The headline was taken from Wisconsin Public Radio. Protesters interrupt drilling in the Pinocchis. Mine. I say it's mine. You know who I am. Mine is mine, and those things you thought were yours, they're mine. The mines are mine. All the mines that miners mined and died in or out of, they're mine. And that mine that is not a mine yet, that mine you don't want, it will be a mine, and it will be mine. Protest and speak out all you want. I've got my people working on it. They're mining the Constitution. You didn't think that was yours, did you? I'll sing part of an old refrain. This land is my land. I forget the rest. The oil is mine, the water mine, even the wind. I'll meter it and sell it to you as soon as you buy all my oil. Yes, the earth is mine, and when I'm gone, it's going to stay in the family, inherited. And don't give me any of that the meek will inherit the earth crap. You want to get yourself crucified? This this poem, like the repetition of the word mine and all the ways that it's used really shows how often this has happened throughout the history of this country. And here we are in Madison, Wisconsin, on Ho-Chunk land. Um, yes. And the Pinocchio Mines, um, I don't know if everyone knows about that. It, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's Bad River land up there. Is that right? I believe so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here in Milwaukee, we're on Potawatomi land, so... Right. Yeah. I guess I had never thought about the connection between, you know, mine in terms of grabbing something for yourself. And that's basically what humans are doing to the earth. We're grabbing what what's we think is ours out of it. Yeah, that's a it's a great poem, a play on words. I mean, poetry is, you know, playing with language and, and forming it on the right. page. I thought about in, when I was writing this, I thought about the the double entendre and the word shaft, but I, I decided not to overdo it. <laughs> well, I, uh, I may have chosen your uh, poem about redwoods um, to I, be read, uh, but yeah. uh, that one had a double meaning as well. Right. Uh, <laughs> might not be suitable for the air. Yeah. Um, we talked to Peggy Rosga for our last episode about uh, the 60s and the civil rights movement in Milwaukee. And you have a poem about uh, some of the things that were going on in Madison uh, at the same time, the anti-Vietnam protests. Do you want to read Carlton and Robert for us? Sure. Uh, I came to Milwaukee in 1969 ostensibly because I had, I had left the, the, the church. I was in a religious order for a couple of years before that, and the church wasn't moving fast enough for me. And I moved here in 1969. Well, I was sent here by the order I was in to work at a boys home for a while. And then I made up my mind to leave because I had gotten connected 
with the anti-war movement and the peace movement in Milwaukee. And I, I just found that that's where I wanted to be. So this headline is from August 25th, 1970 from the Wisconsin State Journal. Bomb blast at UW kills one, injures four. Carlton and Robert. Carlton Armstrong wanted to fly, wanted to bring the war home by dropping bombs from the air the way U.S. soldiers were dropping them on the Vietnamese. He wanted to recreate in a small way what was going on over there. But the bombs he dropped on the Badger Army ammunition plant had failed to detonate. Plan B was to blow up the Army Math Research Center in Sterling Hall on the UW-Madison campus. Parts of the van bomb he used were found atop an eight-story building three blocks away. Then, in the morning news, Robert Fosnacht had been working late. He was killed in the explosion. Robert had a face, a family, but so did the 1.1 million Asian victims of napalm, landmines, and carpet bombing carried out by the American pilots. The U.S. soldiers never knew the names of those they killed. Many didn't even consider them human. It was part of the training, the conditioning. Did their anonymity make those lives less valuable? Did Carlton consider Robert's death collateral damage? What's one life worth? What are a million? Yeah, he was, uh, Carl was somebody that my father met teaching poetry in prison. So he met him wow. uh, at Wapan. Um, and then when he, when he got out, it just um, maintained a relationship. Um, I, met, I met him a couple of times in my trips to Madison uh, for various I think he ran a little juice stand or something along the, the, the mall there by the library and between the library and the union. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I, yeah. I had a little connection with him anyway. There's a lot of uh, lessons there, both in terms of the war and then the use of violence to to protest and the possible, you know, quote unquote, collateral damage of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the the ironies you really get to really well, one, one person versus a million. Mm-hmm. There's another poem that you have that makes that same juxtaposition about a a couple that's killed on vacation and you ask the question, why am why do I know about this? And I don't know about a million deaths in somewhere else. You know, and I grew up in a very political family and I'd say we had politics for breakfast, but as a young person, we would watch Vietnam war coverage during dinner. And I know my, my parents were very political and my dad years later, as we would talk, he'd say, they'll never do that again because if they do that, no one will go to war. And uh, we don't see the coverage. Like, it's so far removed from us. But, right. um, yeah. Yeah, well, the people who plan wars made their, they learned the lesson from it. So when we invaded Iraq, you couldn't even show coffins coming back with flags exactly. draped over yeah. them. So they learned the lesson not to show. Right. But if somebody else is doing it, we see it all over, like what's going on in the Ukraine now. You know, I mean, you know, we, we see the news that, they want us to see. Yeah, contrasted with uh, the war in Yemen, which is U.S.-sponsored uh, bombs falling. Um, you, right. you referenced Noam Chomsky earlier. That really gets to the the notion of worthy versus unworthy victims. You know, we I think we all have a responsibility to condemn all war and all aerial bombardment of civilians. Mm-hmm. That's it. You know, there's no yeah. there's no winner. 
I knew a young man. I actually hired him when we lived in Seattle, um, and he was coming from Somalia, and he just had an expression that really struck me. I don't know if it's an African proverb or a common expression, but it was when two elephants fight, it's the grass underneath that gets trampled. Hmm. It really gets that the the uh, war is not an instrument that people can control. It's uh, okay. killing a fly with a sledgehammer, so to speak. We're going to move on to uh, another poem. Uh, this is really interesting to both Devin and I because we have seen the Cave of Forgotten Dreams. So I like your take on it. Uh, could you read this piece? I, I believe it's The Voices at Chave Cave. Thanks. Um, the, the headline is from the National Geographic, uh, January 2015, uh, Shooting Chauvet, the world's oldest cave art. After seeing Werner Herzog's The Cave of Forgotten Dreams. So I'd, I'd seen this film and it, it just struck me that, you know, what are these people doing in there? It looks like a temple, you know. The Voices at Chauvet Cave. We are artists who know nothing of art criticism, who didn't need you to discover us or evaluate our work. Like all artists, we create because we must. This is not a museum or a temple. It's simply a cave where we chose to honor the animals who feed and clothe us and the great ones fast enough to elude our spears. These are not abstractions. The animals with eight legs run fast the ones with 12 run faster. Those are the great ones we will never taste. These are the stories of our hunt. We hunt for food and clothing, and we honor our kill. Most of all, we do not draw for you. We do not seek your praise or your speculation. We do not know you, could not even have imagined you. If we had known, we would have prayed for a tighter seal when the cliff face fell over the entrance to this cave. Really like this poem, Ed. I like how you speculate. You you have a through line in here. This line, we create because we must, and I see that in the beginning of every section of the chapter, you have that last line, we create because we must. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. Thank you. Hmm. And I like how you say these folks might have been better off if we couldn't get there. And I, I know it's a protected area, but I think about we're these humans with these old bodies, and yet we've been creating forever. And we have pictures that people put on cave walls, but we probably lost poems and we lost songs and stories that we'll never be able to get back. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, somewhere there was a there was another Shakespeare who just didn't write it down, right? There would have been yeah. a, a, a master storyteller who who told all the tales and explored all the moral ramifications. And for for a long time, I mean, that what was it was oral, right? Po yes. Poetry and poetry and and song were were considered the same thing. In the movie, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Spartacus, uh -huh. but there's there's this scene where Tony uh, Curtis has joined Spartacus' um, army. And I, Kirk Douglas, I think they're sitting around, you know, after battle or whatever. And, and Kirk Douglas says, sing us a song, poet. Hmm. And I mean, that was just, you know, yeah. it was yeah. just, nobody, nobody had to write it down. They, they knew what they were, what they were 
chanting, you know. Yeah, I like the way you stepped into the or tried to step into the mentality. And of course, they couldn't have possibly imagined us later and, and would not have been drawing those pictures for posterity or for right um, for mm-hmm. generations as far ahead as we are. Yeah. Um, yeah, I believe the movie is called Cave of Forgotten Dreams. People are probably familiar with it, but mm-hmm. highly recommended. I think Angie and I watched it twice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Speaking of great poets, we're going to move to the smiling mortician, mortician foiled, which I know comes from Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And before you read this piece, uh, Devin and I saw Lawrence Ferlinghetti in Bellevue, Washington. And you talk about a rock star. People were lined up to see him standing. You couldn't get into the parking lot. I mean, and he read from Coney Island of the Mind, and it was just yes. phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember what year it was, but uh, Antler and uh, Jeff Ponivage, uh when they were at UWM, they they brought him here for a reading at UWM, and it was just like that. Wow. I mean, standing standing room only, and uh, you know, I was just glad to have heard him read in person once in my life because he's been a poetic hero of mine for, you know, since since the beginning. And you just mentioned two great poets, one who's alive and one who is no longer with us. Um, but Milwaukee is full of poets, as is Madison. So thank you for bringing both of them into this space. Thank you. So this uh, this poem is from the New York Times, or the headline is from the New York Times, February 23rd, 2021, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, poet who nurtured the beats, dies at 101. The smiling mortician, foiled. After nearly 102 years, you finally tired of waiting for the American eagle to drop those arrows from its talons and join the parliament of birds in their search for a rebirth of wonder. Yes, after nearly 102 years of waiting for a disarmed eagle, its wings clipped to address an avian summit, confess and repent, you gave up. You stopped for death and waited patiently while they caught up with you, panting. Then, just as that smiling mortician was catching its breath, just as it raised its scythe for the harvest, I saw Elijah's fiery wind chariot Sweep, swoop down with the gulls, swing low and gather you, the last of the great prophets, and carry you away, blazing and still breathing. Um, you have a nice tribute to someone that I would call a uh, great American. Um, would you mind reading your tribute to Hank Aaron called His Hammer for us? Yes, uh, this is another poem from the obituary section. The headlines from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. January 22nd, 2021. Baseball legend Hank Aaron, who began and ended his big league career in Milwaukee, dies at 86. His hammer. For 23 years, like a carpenter, he brought his tools and a working class ethic to the workplace. Jackie had broken down the door in 1947 and begun the deconstruction of that old white edifice that had barred people of color. Hank walked in Jackie's footsteps, letting his tools do the talking. His bat carried quietly like Teddy's big stick, hammered out 40 homers year after year. 
As he approached the Babe's record, small-minded, resentful racists were ruthless in their hatred, threatening him and his family. The closer he came to Ruth, the more vile their threats became, in the hopes he'd give up and their white idol would be safe. But Hammer and Hank was a craftsman who showed up for work every day. He chiseled his own epitaph into the granite stone of the baseball record book. So we, we are coming to the end, and we're going to have you read the, the poem of your choice to end with. And, uh, uh, and it's been a pleasure. It's really a pleasure. Thank, yeah, thank you. Um, the, the main way to buy the book is to go to watersedgepress.com, go to the store, and scroll down till you see the book. I also have a website. Uh, it's my name, edwerstein.com. But I, I really, in the spirit of the contract I have with Water's Edge, if you if you want the book, go to their website and, and buy it there. All right, uh, this last poem is uh, the headline is is from the it's from the weather section, the weather news section. The headlines from the Guardian, November twenty seventh, two thousand nineteen. Climate emergency: world may have crossed the tipping point poem is called The Tepid Sea. At the end of the world, poetry will be shouted from rooftops and railway stops, from beaches and balconies, from church steeples and the minarets of mosques. At the end of the world, poetry will be screamed from soapboxes on street corners, from a burning rainforest, from the rocky moraine of a vanishing glacier. At the last poetry reading at the end of the world, the last poets will speak from the ice of the last berg melting into the warming water. As each poet recites their farewell poem, they will slip into the salty tea of that tepid sea. And as the final poet recites the final poem at the end of the world, appropriately an elegy or a lament, but not an epic as time will be short, and as this last poem does for the this last poet does for the last time what poets have always done, there will be no one left to listen. Wow, thank you, Ed. You have been listening to Madison Bookbeat. Stay tuned this afternoon for All Around Jazz with Alex Wilding White. The Insurgent Radio Kiosk is up next. I've been your host, Angie Trudel Vasquez. And I'm Devin Trudell. Keep it tuned here to Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. We want to thank Sparkhammer Music for our theme song. Thank you so much.